The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. Let's get going. My name is Chris. If I have yet to meet you online, my name is Chris. I'm the lead pastor here. We've got work to do. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, please open it up to Matthew chapter 9. Uh, you can open a phone or a tablet. There are hardback black Bibles under every single chair. If you'd like to open one of those to uh, page 814, you'll find Matthew chapter 9. We're in this Matthew sermon series right now, so Matthew 9 is where we are at. And, and I'm calling today's sermon, Pardon the Interruption. That's the the title of my sermon, and you'll see why as we get going. Uh, Like I've told you before, this section of Matthew is interesting because uh, Matthew kind of gives us three miracles and then a discipleship moment, and then three more miracles and then another discipleship moment, and we are in the third kind of triad of three miracles today. There are three miracles. Actually, there are four miracles that happen, three miracle stories, Um, but today I'm only going to cover the first miracle, and we're going to skip the second two because the other two, uh, the other two have themes that show up elsewhere in Matthew. And I'm going to take preacher's privilege and just say, we're just going to handle this one because I feel like this one is the most important one for our time together today. Now we don't have time for like a lengthy introduction. I don't have time for a lengthy, somebody's got something happening here and it better be Jesus. All right. Better be Jesus. Um, I'm I'm not going to give you a lengthy introduction. We are going to jump right into our text and get going. So here we go. Pardon the interruption, cell phone people. Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. We're going to look at verse 18. While Jesus was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him. Now I want you to stop mid-sentence there. A ruler comes in and knelts, kneels before Jesus. Today's story begins with what, what Matthew calls a ruler coming to see Jesus. Um, and this, this miracle that we're going to see is actually recorded in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They all three uh, cover this miracle. Matthew's account is the shortest of the three. It's half the size of Mark's. It's only a third the size of Luke's. It's, this, is, this is given a lot of press, these miracles today. Uh, but Luke and Mark give this man a name. His name is Jairus. He is a ruler of the synagogue, okay? That's uh, the title that is given to him. And that title is a really big deal as we try to interpret this passage because as a ruler of the synagogue, um, Jairus would have been one of the top-ranking religious officials in the city and thus a very wealthy man. Jairus has position, he has wealth, and he steps into our story. The text says that Jairus knelt down before Jesus. And I just want to note right off the bat, for for a highly respected religious community leader like this, to fall down at the feet of Jesus was unusual. It was unusual. Men did not do that in this culture. Men did not prostrate themselves before somebody else, okay? This shows this unusual and desperate plight uh, and the incredible esteem that this guy has for Jesus. And listen, the religious authorities didn't always love Jesus, right? They're not keen on Jesus in a lot of cases, but for this text, Jairus shows up and and the text will tell us why he is so desperate. So back to, to verse 18, 
Back to verse 18, it says, a ruler came in and knelt before him saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Okay, now this is where the text changes a little bit from Mark and Luke to Matthew, but, but Mark and Luke tell us that, that when Jairus shows up, the daughter is still alive, uh, but was on the very edge of death. Now, Matthew says that, that, that she uh, has already died. He abbreviates, most scholars believe, uh, just to kind of shorten the, the account for, for, for the interest of length. But either way, this ruler, Jairus, shows up and the circumstances are dire, okay? The question is this, what would you do if your little girl was dying or dead? Like right on the edge of death, what would you do? The answer is, you do anything, I mean, as a, as a girl dad right here, just get out of the way. Don't stand in my way if my little girl needs something. I mean, I'm, if she's on the edge of death, you do whatever it takes. Jairus is in a place of extreme desperation here. Extreme desperation. Luke's account tells us that th- this girl was his only daughter. His only daughter, that she was 12 years old at this point, uh, which at th- those details, this would have made this an oddity. It is odd that a man of this stature has only one daughter and that that daughter is 12 and there are no other siblings. It must have meant that they could not have had more kids. There was something going on that would have prohibited him from having more children, only meaning that this little girl must have meant the world to him in a whole different way. Okay. And now remember his position. Remember his position. He is rich. He's wealthy. He's well known in the community. He has probably spent all of his money to bring in doctors. He's probably expended all of the options at hand. He's at his lowest point of desperation. He's probably done everything that he could. And and Matthew even treats it as if there is no hope. The girl is dead already. And so in desperation, this guy runs to Jesus and just thinks, okay, maybe Jesus. Like, what what if what everybody's saying is true? What if what everybody is saying, like, what if he can actually help. And so he finds Jesus and he falls at his feet and he just says, I beg you, Jesus, I beg you, please come lay your hand on my little girl. Just come, just come. And here's what happens. Verse 19. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. I mean, you just got to imagine this dad's joy at this moment. Just the elation at this moment. I mean, this is asking Jesus to come is his Hail Mary throw. It's the toss at the end of the game, just hoping that something might be caught and there might be a different result here. And Jesus gets up and goes with him. Now, this is a great, this is great news for Jairus. Great news. But something unexpected happens. Look at verse 20. In verse 20, it says, Behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Now, 
in the other two gospel accounts, in Mark and Luke's account of this story. As Jesus goes with Jairus to go visit his dying daughter, it says that there are crowds pressing in all around him. There are people all around him, like word had been getting out about Jesus and his ability to do miracles. And you can now imagine Jairus at this moment trying to fight his way through the crowd, trying to get Jesus, this healer, this rabbi to his little daughter who was on the edge of death, on the precipice of death, when all of a sudden this woman in the crowd touches Jesus' garment and Jesus stops. Now it says that she had suffered from a discharge of blood, which is a very biblical, polite way of saying that she had an uncontrollable menstrual flow. She had something going on that meant that she was not only sick, but likely in pain, okay? She was very likely unable to have children of her own, and even more, and maybe worse, she would have been in that culture considered ceremonially unclean. She would have been considered like a leper, an outsider, an outcast, I mean, if you want to do some light reading on this, go ahead and pick up Leviticus 15. Uh, Leviticus 15 is titled uh, Laws About Bodily Discharges. Okay, not great reading for your young children right before bed. But, you know, it's, I mean, it's in, what this would mean, what this meant is that no one, hear me, would have even come close to this woman. For 12 years, no one would have dared touch her. Lest they might be considered unclean themselves. I mean, try to imagine this. It's hard to even get our brains around this. It's not like she's been dealing this for 12 days. It's not like she's been even handling this for 12 months. Maybe, I mean, you can deal with some stuff for 12 months. We just went through a pandemic, still happening, I know, but like we, we can kind of get our heads around even a year, but imagine 12 years, more than a decade for 12 years, she's not allowed to come to church. No public worship for her. For 12 years, nobody has touched her. There's psychological studies that tell you that that is not good. You need physical touch, physical engagement. No one's hugged her. No one's laid a hand on her to pray for her. She is an outcast in her society. She is undoubtedly lonely. And really, here's the truth. She really shouldn't even be in the crowd at this point. She's breaking all kinds of rules by even showing up in the city, getting everybody around her dirty as she presses up to try to touch this healer. But just like Jairus, man, she is desperate. After 12 years, you just do about anything to get healed. And then the one other thing that you should notice about this woman is that in all three of the accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, she is given no name. She's never named in any of the three accounts. You see, I think what Matthew and Mark and Luke are doing is is they're trying to show us that Jairus and the woman are actually at the very same place in their lives. They're both at rock bottom, right? In this whole story, Jairus and the woman, they're set in contrast against one another. He's got a daughter, hear me, who's 12 years old. She's been bleeding for 12 years. That's not an accidental thing. She was, uh, he was the ruler of the synagogue. She's not even allowed in the synagogue. He was respected. She was rejected. His is a household name that everyone would have known. Hers is a name that nobody knew to the point where they don't even record it. And now 
this woman is coming forward, I imagine trembling with fear, just wondering this, like, is this guy going to reject me too? Is he going to publicly shame me as well? He knows I'm not supposed to be here. Pardon the interruption. So she reaches out and the text says that, that she touches the fringe of his garment. Now, um, the word touch here in the Greek is actually, I think, translated a bit too soft for my liking. Okay, the word touch here is a different word than we'll see Jesus touches this little girl and heals her. It's a different word. The word touch that this woman uh, uses, uh, that, that verb is more forceful than just thinking, oh, she just like bats it like a cat or kind of hits that. No, it's, it's more forceful. It, it actually is, I think, better translated like to fasten oneself to something. To, to, to adhere to or to cling to. Like she doesn't just touch this. She, she grabs at it. She, she clings to it. She adheres to it. And, and I just thought that was so helpful to, to think through because there were a lot of different people at this moment touching Jesus as he's working his way through a crowd, but, but her touch was different. Okay, lots of people are, are touching Jesus casually, but fewer though are touching him intentionally. And we've got lots of people in churches today all over the place who are touching Jesus casually. Just kind of batting him like a cat. But, but you don't get the power of Jesus by just, by just being here casually. Like, the, like there's some sort of spiritual osmosis that happens if you come to church or if you read your Bible or something like that. Like, like you get it actually by throwing yourself at his feet and admitting how desperately you are in need of his help, surrendering yourself fully to him, grabbing a hold of him, grasping him. The power of Jesus flows to people who grab a hold of him, who cling to him for dear life, who in faith, in desperation, fasten themselves to Jesus. So, so the question is not, did you come to church to hear sermons or to make friends or to join a small group or because you like the music? The question isn't that, but do you desperately lean into Jesus for life and salvation? That's a big difference. And this woman in her desperation clings Jesus. And now what happens next, if you've been in church, you already know how this goes, but what happens next is one of the most important, I think, most important teaching moments in the life of Jesus. We'll see it, okay? But it looks at the central question of what is it like to be completely exposed of all your defilement, of all of your filth, of all of your guilt and your shame before a holy God. Let's look at this, verse 22. So she grabs at his garment, thinking, if I only touch his garment, I'll be made well. And Jesus turned, and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly, the woman was made well. So here is a woman unclean and defiled touching somebody that everyone regards to be a holy man, to be a clean man. And, and, and 
This doesn't shock us as much as it would our first century audience, or maybe if you're talking to somebody who is uh, like a Muslim or an Orthodox Jew, but it should strike us what normally happens when an unclean thing touches a clean thing. We've just learned about this in COVID. Wash your hands, wear your mask, keep your distance, right? What happens when a sick person touches someone who's not sick? The clean thing becomes defiled by the dirty thing. That's what normally happens, right? What happens if a sick person comes in close contact with a healthy person? If I'm sick, if if I got a cold, I've got the flu, if I've got COVID, okay, and I come close to you and you're well, your wellness doesn't rub off on me. Right? That's not how it works. If you, we, we don't say, hey, my kid is sick, so I'm just going to bring them to the nursery, drop them off with all those well kids, and maybe the wellness will rub off on them. Listen, if you believe that, I've got a lot of churches I'd like to send you to. Plenty of them, all right? Ones I don't like as much, all right? But if, if I'm sick and I sneeze on you, we say things that's weird. Like we say, I gave you my cold, like I gave it to you, that doesn't mean that I don't have it anymore. That would be awesome. I just sneeze on somebody I don't like and then I'm feeling better. Like that'd be great. But that, that's, that's not what it means. What it means is we both have it. Dirtiness multiplies. Sickness multiplies. It's not the other way around. When the unclean touches the clean, the clean becomes unclean. But this is why this is so shocking. This is why this story is so shocking. When the unclean thing in this story touches the clean thing, when the sick touches the well, the sick is the one who gets healthy. Now, here's the question theologically. The theological question here is this. What happened to the uncleanliness? Where'd it go? This is the million-dollar question of the Gospels. What happened to her defilement? Well, Jesus, here's the answer, silently takes it into himself. It doesn't just disappear. He takes it upon himself. Second Corinthians chapter five says this, you might know this verse. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. You know that? You know this verse? You know this verse? Yes. Jesus, hear me, is going to end his life on a cross where he will, hear me, literally become sin for us. Take it on himself, bearing our shame. Uh, The prophet Isaiah would say of the Messiah that he will bear our griefs. He will carry our sorrows. He will be wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. The, the, The sickness doesn't just disappear. Jesus becomes our sickness. Jesus becomes our sin. He becomes our defilement. He takes that on himself. On the cross, he took our defilement and condemnation so that his cleanliness could be passed to us. And listen, that didn't just start in the cross. It didn't just happen on the cross, okay? But all throughout the life of Jesus, he takes this woman's uncleanliness into himself. And and, and what we're seeing here is our moment of salvation being illustrated. 
This is a moment of salvation. This is why this is theologically pertinent, okay? When we touch Jesus in faith, when you touch Jesus in faith today, the guilt and shame and the penalty of your sin passes into him. He takes it upon himself and his wholeness and his purity and his forgiveness passes into you. This is the gospel. This is the good news of the gospel right here. This woman goes home to her family healthy and Jesus heads to the cross. This is double imputation. This is penal substitutionary atonement. If you went through our theology class, you'll remember this. So I just, I don't know that I can overemphasize the importance of this moment. And then look at the word that uh, Jesus uses to call her. Just look once again at the text. He calls her daughter. He calls this woman daughter. She's never given a name, but he calls her daughter. Scholars will tell us that this is a term of the most intimate endearment. It's like him calling her sweetheart. I call my, 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 my daughter girlfriend. I say girlfriend. Like it's endearment. And, and now here's the other just beautiful thing here. This is the only person that Jesus ever uses this term with in any of the gospels. Never before, never again, does he call a woman daughter. The girl who nobody wanted has just been called daughter by the ultimate heavenly father. The girl who nobody would touch is embraced by the strongest and and most tender arms imaginable. The name nobody else knew is precious to Jesus. He calls her daughter. I mean, you see the contrast here, right? Jairus is a dad who's pleading for his daughter. Same word before Jesus, but this woman has no one to plead for her. And so Jesus calls her his daughter. This should move us. Whether you're a Christian or not, this should move us deep in our spirits. So this is an awesome story. Love it. Loving it. Like victory. Woman's not bleeding anymore. Awesome. Except what happened to Jairus? Pardon the interruption, Jesus. This woman interrupts him, but he was on a mission. It's great for this woman, but poor Jairus. Sure, this woman was desperate. No doubt she was desperate, but so was Jairus. Like, let's not forget this, okay? His little girl is on death's doorstep. And now here's Jesus stepping into an extended time on the street, dealing with a woman's chronic ailment. Like, she's cutting in line. Just cut in line, right? She jumped line. I imagine Jairus is like, hey, no cuts, man. No cuts. I was here first. In fact, in fact, 12 years of bleeding, that doesn't feel like it's so imminent, Could she not have waited a few more hours so that he could go heal the daughter who is dead or dying? And in fact, in the other two gospels, this is the moment where they show up, the the runners show up and they say, you missed your chance. Tyrus, your daughter is dead. That's the moment. But Jesus has not forgotten her and has not forgotten Jairus. Look at verse 23. 23. 
And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion. Okay, pause there. They, they come upon Jairus's house and it says the crowd's making commotion, which means they're in the funeral session now. The funeral has begun. They did not embalm their dead like the Egyptians Okay, and, and so they would start the funeral sometimes within hours of uh, a death. So he shows up, and in those days, funerals are a noisy affair. They're loud. There's lots of wailing, gnashing of teeth. Today, funerals are hushed. They're more silent, more subdued, more reflective. Like back then, they just yelled and mourned, expressing, expressing their anguish. Right? They would tear their clothes. They would put ashes on their head. It says they hired flute players, which seems strange until you hear a couple of flutes, then you feel like dying too. So it's like, all right, let's just keep it rolling, right? This is the scene that Jesus walks into. This is the scene in verse 24. Jesus said, go away. The girl is not dead, but sleeping. That's offensive, by the way. You go to a funeral and you try that, try and pull that car. Hey, they ain't dead. They just sleep. No, that... That is offensive language. She's not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand. And the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. I love that Jesus rebukes the flutists first. My man, right? Get out of here, flute players. Um, and then he just resurrects a dead little girl. He just, he just resurrects this little girl. Now, here's the question that I'm wrestling with all week on this story. It feels like I feel kind of inoculated to Jesus rising this little girl from the dead. But here's the question I'm, I, I'm just wrestling with all week. Why does he do the miracle this way? Why does Jesus do it this way? I mean, if you remember back to, to chapter eight, Matthew chapter eight, uh, Eric preached this to us. Uh, there was a Roman centurion who shows up to Jesus and asks him to heal his servant, uh, servant. And Jesus heals that servant from a distance, like chucks a miracle bomb in some way. And it just heals the guy. Like, I, why didn't he do that with Jairus here? Like, like, why didn't he heal his daughter while she was still alive? Why put Jairus through this kind of process? Why make him wait those painstaking minutes as time passed away on the street while he heals this woman? Why let this little girl die first? Why do you do it this way? When he's obviously shown us that he can heal in a myriad of ways. Well, I think it's to teach us something. Notice how casual this miracle seems. I don't know if you noticed that, but when I read it, it, this is what it says. Jesus went in, took her by the hand, and she arose. I mean, that's astounding. No fanfare, no incantation, no Lazarus come forth, right? Nothing. He just takes her by the hand. Same, uh, different word for touch. He touches her hand, he takes her by the hand. It's a different word for touch than the woman who was bleeding, but he takes her by the hand and she's up. Just up, like she was taking a nap, like she was sleeping. And this is how all three of the gospel accounts paint this story. See, I think, I think Jesus is facing the most feared and devastating enemy that the human race has ever known at this moment. Death. 
Death is that. It's that enemy that elicits fear in all. And he simply just takes the little girl by the hand and she's up. See, what he's showing us is that that when he is holding your hand, even death becomes like a little nap. Get up, sweetheart. I just, come on, wake up. Just like Jesus takes the bleeding woman's uncleanness, uncleanliness into himself, so now Jesus takes the sting of death from this little girl into himself. I mean, death feels so final, but if you are in Christ, it's not. Death feels so alone, like you are abandoned, but in Christ, he's on your bedside, taking you by the hand. The resurrection of this little girl is showing us that in Christ's death is not final. It is not the end. It's just a little nap. It's just a little nap. And I love that the first person she saw when she comes back from death is Jesus. That's the first face she sees. The first voice she hears is Jesus' voice. The first touch she feels in her newly resurrected body was Jesus' touch. Y'all, this is a picture of what everyone who dies in Christ has to look forward to. It's it's an image. We are like the woman and Jesus is able to clean us of our uncleanliness, but we are also like the little girl and Jesus is able to make death for us, but a little nap. Now, that's the story. Many of you are familiar with the story. But what are the applications that we might take from this story? Well, let me give you three, three applications from this story. First, come to him. Come to Jesus. This is the first application. I mean, the question for us is, are, are you like Jer- Jarius? Are you like, I mean, Jairus, I'm sorry. Are you like this woman? I mean, in some ways, all of us are at some level, right? You've tried everything. You've spent all that you have, but nothing seems to be working. This is the offer for us on the table. Maybe you've accepted this offer. Maybe you haven't, but the offer is come to me, come to him, fall at his feet, cling to him, get a hold of him, grasp him. He can fix you. He can heal the deepest parts of your soul, but you have to come to him. And not just casually touch him or brush up against him or bat him. You gotta cling and attach yourself to him. You gotta come to him. That's the first application. Then the second application is this you've gotta trust him with death. You gotta trust Jesus with, hear me, your death. COVID didn't change the numbers, y'all. Death rate is still hovering right about 100%. You're going to die. I know this is not cool evangelical things to talk about, but this is the truth. You and I, all of us, everything that we might have that's different, every single one of us will die. And Jesus is the one who, when he sits by your bedside, will make death feel like a nap. By the way, this is uh, when, when, when thinking about death, it's popular uh, for many people to say, well, I'm, I'm going to a better place. Uh, you know, we'll see them again someday. You know, of course I'm going to heaven. Of course I'm, I'm a good person. Of course I'm going to heaven. And, and these are, I hear these comments often by people who never really love and follow Jesus at all. 
Jesus has said in the last couple of chapters of Matthew that discipleship is total surrender to him. It's paying everything. It's the cost of today. It's the cost of all of you. And that means that faith that will not change you in life cannot save you in death. No matter how sentimental you might feel about Jesus, no matter how good people you might be, if you're not his follower, if you're not fully surrendered to him, he, hear me, he will not be sitting next to your bedside holding your hand at death. This is a great message to, to, to shrink a church with. But it's true. Just like Jairus, you need to trust him with death. And only then will it become like a nap. Final application. Number three, go public. Go public. You, you've, if you want to follow Jesus, you've got to go public. You've got to come forward. Jesus calls this woman daughter only after she comes and touches him. And in the other gospel accounts, owns it. He says, who touched me? And she comes forward and owns it. Jairus only, uh, he, he came forward and humbly bowed before Jesus, before Jesus was able and willing to heal his daughter. You've got to go public with this stuff. The gospel is that God turns dirty outcasts into beloved sons and daughters. He takes dead people and he makes them alive again. And you may think Christians have it all together and that you're just not quite there. You're just kind of jacked up and janky and you're not really sure that you're kind of part of this thing yet. But I'm just going to tell you, everybody looks great and everything is normal until you see them a little bit deeper, until you get to know them. You think, you think you're dysfunctional? You should meet our staff. I see you there, Amanda. Just, everybody's normal until you, until you get to know them. And then you're like, oh man, everybody is just as messed up as me. If you believe in Jesus, if you believe this stuff and you haven't gone public with it, that's the step. It's time to go public. There is a blessing that comes from Jesus when you own him publicly. And listen, this is why baptism is so important. This is why baptism is so important. You are not supposed to keep your love for Jesus private. You're supposed to declare it. Baptism is going public with your faith. And hear me, I know Christianity is not getting more popular. It is waning in popularity culturally. And so getting in a tank on Main Street in front of all the restaurant onlookers might feel like death. But hear me, it's the only way to life. You got to go public I know, we just did, I know we just did baptisms on Easter, but listen, we'll fill the tank next week if, if somebody wants to get dunked. Some of you, you've been on the edge, just on the periphery, just kind of touching Jesus from the crowd, and now you need to, to grab a hold of him and go public with it. Grab a hold of him and follow. So let me end with this illustration. Two summers uh, ago, we went through a season where we were trying to convince our daughter Harper that the swimming pool is awesome. Okay. I don't know if every parent goes through this. We certainly did. Uh, we would go to our pool and Harper would stand on the side of the pool scared, even though she had more flotation devices on her than the Titanic, right? Like she was covered. Okay. But, uh, but, but we're trying to convince her that the pool is awesome. So she is on the edge and I'm in the pool. Okay. Water to my thighs standing in the pool. And I say, come here, jump to me and I'll catch you. 
Just jump to me and I'll catch you. And Harper was like, no, 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 come closer. So I'd take a couple little baby steps in and I'd say, all right, you know, come on, jump to me. And she would go, no, closer, closer. And I'd get a little bit closer and I'd hold, I could almost touch her at this point. And I'm like, just jump to me. And she's like, I don't know, scoot closer. And I'm like, listen, at this point, my thighs are touching the edge of the pool. There is no closer, girlfriend. There's no more close I can get. So I'm just trying to convince her at this point. Hey, this is awesome. The water is awesome. Okay, you're going to love this. There's going to be a day that I am going to physically have to threaten you for you to get out of the pool, right? There will be a time where I'm not going to be able to get you out of here. You just got to trust me. This is great. Just jump to me. But she has this fear and this nervousness, right? Am I going to sink? Can I really trust that I'll be caught by this guy, which is crazy, Because first of all, the water is up to my knees, right? And frankly, if I really wanted to do some damage, the public pool is not the right place to do that. But this is, I think, what is happening here. Today, some of you, maybe even online, are, are hearing Jesus say, come on in. Just jump to me. And to jump to him is to believe in him, to have faith like like Jairus, to have faith like like this woman. But I'm afraid. But I have questions. My, My life is a mess. Listen, faith is about stepping out to do what God has called you to do before all the circumstances have been worked out. Jesus is saying, believe in me and what I've done for you. And the invitation is this, all that you want is found here in this direction, but you've got to jump. You've got to jump in. All that you desire, all that you hope for is this way, but we're just a little nervous. And listen, even if I'm, I'm anticipating this because we took a year off from the pool because of COVID. I'm guessing that Harper knows though the water is safe, but she might be nervous on the edge again. And some of you, maybe you jumped at one point, but but you might be on the edge nervous again in some ways. Like that kid standing on the side of a pool, but until you jump, until you jump to him, you'll never really understand the delight that it is to swim. Come to him, trust him, go public with it. Interrupt him. Pardon the interruption. Jesus actually is just waiting for you to interrupt him. Let's pray together. Father, we bless you today. So good to read a story that is tried and true that many, many of us have heard numbers of times. And yet, Lord, we are grateful for the picture that it shows us of the gospel. That you take our sin upon yourself. That you take the, 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 the filth, the, the disgust, the, the shame, the, the, the guilt, all of those things that would leave us in a place where we feel dirty and we feel forgotten and we feel lost. And you take those things on. You even take our death onto yourself. And yet you... You give us cleanliness. You gift us righteousness. You lay your good on us. You take our shame and you give us your righteousness, your life. God, I do pray that this picture of the gospel would would both encourage those of us who are in Christ to remember that we were this woman, that we were Jairus. 
But Lord, I also, through the power of the Holy Spirit, pray that some who are standing on the side of the pool might make that jump in faith today. Maybe they've gotten out of the pool and they need to get back in. Maybe they've never gotten wet in their life. Lord, call to them through the power of your Holy Spirit, not through preaching, through the Spirit. Call to them to jump, to find life, to find faith, to find hope. We love you, Father. Thank you for this passage. We pray it changes us deeply. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen.